Hi everyone, welcome back to Hitchcock University where you learn filmmaking from the masters. All right, we're gonna get started today on an episode I'm sure you all have been waiting for ever since I announced who this semester was about. Uh, this is this is the class session on Taxi Driver. I'm sure you're all looking forward to this. Let me start with the script. So as many of you know, Paul Schrader wrote the film Taxi Driver, but Scorsese was not the first director to get his hands on it. The first director to get his hands on it was another filmmaker was another friend of Scorsese and Paul Schrader by the name of Brian De Palma. I mention that because it's very important. See, Scorsese was part of a, a generation of, of very influential filmmakers. It's difficult to talk about any one of these filmmakers on their own because their stories are so interwoven. See, Spielberg, George Lucas, Martin Scorsese, Francis Ford Coppola, Brian De Palma, Paul Schrader, all of these guys and more were very close because they all came up at about the same time and very quickly became known throughout the industry as young up-and-coming talent. And they were all friends. They all hung out together. They all helped each other on each other's projects. They also competed with each other. They were every sense of a generation of filmmakers, truly a generation of filmmakers because they because they were all so much a part of what of what each other was doing. So I bring that name up, Brian De Palma, to say that. Because um, I think that's important to understand in this story and, and hopefully important and, and will continue to be important as we go along throughout, throughout this career and, and we'll probably come back to this generation at some point and talk about one of these other filmmakers. Anyway, so Paul Schrader gives the script to Brian De Palma makes its way to the hands of a producer and gets and eventually makes its way to Marty Scorsese. Now, Paul Schrader wrote Taxi Driver almost as therapy. See, the loneliness and the anger that make up this film and specifically make up Travis Bickle, Bobby De Niro's character, Robert De Niro's character, excuse me, um, I'm probably going to call him Bobby because I keep much as I've adopted Hitch and Marty as nicknames, Robert De Niro is known as Bob De Niro to almost anyone who's worked with him more than once. And some people who have, haven't even worked with him that much. So I, I've i kind of adopted that <laughs> because I keep hearing it all the time. Um, Paul Schrader wrote this script that, that really encapsulated what he was feeling at the time, this anger, this rage and this loneliness. And when Marty read the script, he realized that he was seeing a mirror of himself as well. That that script encapsulated everything he felt. Because there was something going on in the 70s. I don't know because I wasn't there. But there was clearly something happening. There was something in the air. There was the culmination of the race riots or the Vietnam War, or whatever it was. Um, there were a lot of men, specifically in the United States, who were dealing with a lot of the same, almost disgust, uh, definitely loneliness, and didn't seem to really have an outlet for these emotions that were stirring in them. So Marty gets this script from this producer, Michael Phillips, and he says, I want to do this movie. And Philip says, that's great, but 
who are you? Um, because when Marty got the script, Mean Streets hadn't even been released. So all he has to his name is Who's That Knocking At My Door and Boxcar Bertha, um, an independent film that's really an experiment more than a movie, although still good, and uh, an exploitation film. He doesn't have anything to his name, really. But then Mean Streets comes out, and now all of a sudden he's gained some traction. And then he release, and then he goes on to do Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore and getting even more traction now because he directed a fairly successful film, did a star vehicle for an actress who went on to win her first Academy Award. And so now he has a reputation and enough of a reputation that people will put money behind him. So now, by 1974, by the end of 1974, Michael Phillips is willing to back Marty Scorsese as the director of Taxi Driver. Now, something else happened with Mean Streets. One of the greatest director-actor collaborations started on the set of Mean Streets with Marty Scorsese and Bobby De Niro. See, De Niro really was able to showcase his ability as an actor. He played a very unpredictable character, almost, almost Joker-esque, actually, the more I think about it, just not as maybe not as smart as the Joker. And... Also, ironically, by 1974, had won his first Oscar um, for his performance in Coppola's The Godfather Part Two, And people had recognized that Marty and Bobby could be a good team because of their past, because of their track record with Main Streets. So now, Marty can also bring in Bobby for their second collaboration together because he's bankable as well. And interestingly enough, De Niro was also one of these other American men who was feeling a lot of the same things. In fact, he had been trying to write a script that wasn't, it, it wasn't Taxi Driver, but it encapsulated some of the same ideas. And when he read the script for Taxi Driver, he realized, oh, I can do this can still express myself the way I want to, just using my craft instead of one that I'm not as adept in, and scrap my script. So now you have three guys who feel very personally attached to this project because of the themes it covers. And that gets us to a really interesting point, because none of them actually expected this movie to be successful. Schrader, Scorsese, De Niro, even the producer Michael Phillips didn't really have that much confidence in this movie being a success, but they all felt it was important. So they went ahead with it anyway, you know, doing it for as little money as possible, trying to figure out different ways to cut the budget, even at one point thinking, well, maybe we could shoot it on black and white videotape. That's how low budget they were thinking at, at one point for this movie, which is really interesting to me that it was sort of viewed almost as a labor of love by these filmmakers, not as, not as something that would speak for their generation or, or anything like that. It was really something that they felt personally attached to and therefore were personally going to execute it no matter who saw it or who cared. But don't mistake that almost apathy for final results for apathy about the project itself. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. The movie was a little troubled scheduling-wise. They shot it in the summer of New York City. 
and that summer it rained several times. And they had several days where they were forced to shut down or figure out a way around it uh, because of the rain. And I believe, if my if my information is accurate, I went back and tried to find the story again, and I couldn't find it. My notes weren't good enough, so I apologize if I'm not 100% on this. But I believe in the scene where De Niro takes Sybil Shepard out on a, quote, date uh, to a little cafe. And the scene's set up very simply. It's a two-shot, a clean single of Bobby, and a clean single of Sybil. But in all three of those shots, you can see out the window of the cafe onto the New York streets. I think in George Washington Square, if I'm not mistaken. And somewhere during the process of that day, it began to rain, which was a problem. Because now, whatever they shot wasn't going to match what they had already shot earlier in the day. So there's a few options that you can, you can do at that point. You can shut down production for the day, which is never a good idea. Because that costs money. You have to pay people for their time. And you have to get everybody back together. You're adding another half day or maybe even a full day to the schedule that wasn't supposed to be there. That costs money. You have to you have to get that location back, which could be difficult, um, if not impossible. It really just complicates things that much more. So that's option A. Option B would be to just continue shooting and don't care if it matches. It's not a great option because people are probably going to notice if it goes from sunny to rainy across cuts. It's probably not a good idea. Option C is to salvage the day by restaging the scene in the same location. In this instance, it was suggested that maybe what they should do is take the actors away from the window, move them to the other side of the cafe against the wall, and shoot the same scene. This way, at least, they can salvage the day. They don't have to worry about it matching, and things are going to be okay. So let's review. Option A, quit the day. Option B, shoot it so that it doesn't match. And option C, salvage the day, but sacrifice some artistry. In fact, in this particular instance, sacrifice something that Scorsese felt was very important to this film. Scorsese felt that the city of New York was a character. And if the city of New York is a character, then you need to be able to see New York throughout the movie. Especially in a scene with just two people talking. It needs to be omnipresent. Now if it was me, I'm often considered a pragmatist. I don't think I would have the nerve to shut down production for the day. And I definitely wouldn't shoot it in a way that it wouldn't match. So that only leaves me with option C. Turn around, shoot it against the wall. Marty didn't feel that way. See, Marty says something very interesting about this film. And it's because he, he related this film on such a personal level. You have to love something enough to kill it. Marty understood that by taking the risk 
of shutting down for the day, coming back a day later, he was incurring greater risk on the production financially. They were going to have to put more money into it that they didn't necessarily know was going to be there. And he knew by doing that he was even putting himself and maybe the entire project at risk. It would have been very easy for someone with the power of the pen and the power of the dollar to cross his name off of tomorrow's call sheet, replace him with another director, or even just shut the project down completely. But Marty felt so, so passionately about this project that he didn't even think anyone was going to see that he had to have New York City in the background, which means taking what most producers would say was the worst option available to him, shutting down production for the day. He had to do that. This is not something I would recommend for every project. This is not something I would recommend for most projects. But there is something to that. And remember, I'm not teaching you today. Marty is. This is Hitchcock University where you learn filmmaking from the masters. Marty says you have to love something enough to kill it. You have to love a project so much and defend the integrity of that project so much that if you can't get what you want, not, let me rephrase, so that if you cannot make the decisions necessary to fulfill that project's needs, don't do it. Now, it's easy to defend Marty with hindsight. Taxi Driver goes on to be one of the most successful films of all time, garners a number of awards and, and nominations, and is on a number of top 100 lists. And helps cement Marty forever in the canon of cinema. That's not an easy choice to make in the moment. But it's one Marty was able to make because he understood the story to the point that he knew he was doing the project a disservice to compromise in that particular instance. And speaking of uncompromising figures, <laughs> um, if you listened at all to the first semester of Hitchcock University, uh, you should be familiar with the name of Bernard Herrmann. Bernard Herrmann was, uh, was Hitch's, Hitchcock's composer in his sort of golden era. Herman was also known for being uh, difficult to work with, but he made great scores. And again, Brian De Palma helps this project a little bit further. Marty must have met with De Palma or something, who was in the middle of scoring his film Obsession, which was being scored by Bernard Herman. And he's therefore able to get an introduction with Bernard through Brian De Palma and offers him to score the film Taxi Driver. And the reason Marty got a score for this movie and didn't go with the practical music or recorded music or what they call needle drops um, that he'd been known for, this sort of style of, of music to a film that's just, you know, supplied by the world around the movie, whether that's uh, the title song, Who's That Knocking at My Door, or what have you, uh, from his own films, which is what he's known for. He gets a score for this movie. And the reason he gets a score for this movie is because he didn't feel that that Bobby De Niro's character, Travis, would listen to music. 
So if there's not a natural source of music for the film, then there has to be almost uh, maybe not a supernatural, but um, but something not practical, something not from the world. So therefore, it needed a score. So he reaches out to Bernard Herrmann. And uh, Bernard Herrmann was very difficult to work with. At first, he didn't even want to do the movie. And then he kind of says, yeah, all right, I guess I'll do this. And... <laughs> And uh, he qu- he quits the movie and and comes back several times and and uh, it's just a real pain in everybody's butt. But puts together a great score, and thankfully, it's for a great movie because it was his last score, the last movie he ever composed for. Um, in fact, on after they did two nights of recording uh, in the studio with the orchestra. And uh, the evening of the second night, he went home and died. Um, a movie legend who, who thankfully will live on forever through his own work, um, namely through this film. So as we know, um, Scorsese loved a movie enough to die for it. And, uh, and thankfully he did because, it, as I said before, it's, it, it's gone on as one of the greatest movies of all time. And a large part of that is it does seem to capture something that was felt at the time and is from time to time still felt in a lot of us. In fact, Paul Schrader tells stories of having a number of men come up to him throughout the years, especially around the time the movie was released, who identified with the movie. And it became so common that he just had a name for these young men and just called them taxi driver kids. Um, anytime someone would go out and and perform acts of violence against others in a public setting or, or, or do whatever, he, he, he just has gone on to refer to them as taxi driver kids. Um, so yeah, through this very personal expression, um, three men were able to come together and 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 express something that that is really echoed through the through the eras, um, and that's what makes Taxi Driver so, or at least one of the things that makes Taxi Driver so great. So there you have it, uh, <laughs> and on that note. Uh, Thanks for listening to Hitchcock University, where you learn filmmaking from the masters. Um, Next class session will be about New York, New York, where we will learn about we will learn about Marty's failings as a filmmaker uh, in the hopes that we can learn from them as he did. Uh, Then we will talk about Raging Bull. And I believe we're going to talk about, if I remember correctly, King of Comedy after that, which uh, will also introduce us to some more uh, failures from marty and some more some more learning curve um if you have any questions comments concerns otherwise please reach out to me at hitchcock university at gmail.com or uh, on the facebook page hitchcock university or twitter hitchcock underscore you as in university um please give us a, a rating comment review like thumbs up whatever it is uh, wherever it is you get, you listen to the show, if it's on iTunes Podcast, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, uh, what have you. Anyway, uh, thanks again for joining us for class. Uh, we'll talk to you again in two weeks.